0: Can turn in your Bible to John 7. We'll look at the last part of John chapter 7 this morning, verses 40 through 52, and the text is printed in the bulletin for you, and there are some Bibles available on the back table if you need one. <clears throat> petrification, petrification is when organic matter, uh, after exposure to um, certain minerals for a long period of time, uh, when organic matter turns into stony substance. Right? When it loses its pliancy and becomes rigid and inflexible and brittle and uh, unresponsive to stimuli. That's what petrification is. Petrification is also very appropriately used. That, that word is used uh, to describe when fear immobilizes someone. You're petrified when you're scared stiff. Right? Uh, both usages of the word petrification can be applied to those who resist Jesus Christ. Both uses of the word petrification can be applied to those who resist Jesus Christ. Jesus presents a threat that cannot be ignored. And it's fear of that threat that he poses that causes people to resist him. And as people settle in to that position of resistance over time, as their sort of self-protective casing uh, thickens into a toughened shell, as resistance becomes increasingly a part of their reality and their identity, they harden. That's the language the Bible uses. We harden. We become inflexible and incapable of responding to spiritual stimuli. We petrify. And uh, one of the best defenses we use, one of the the best casings that becomes a pretty tough, durable, unbreakable shell, um, one of the best defenses we use to stay safe from the Jesus threat, one of the broadest, thickest, strongest shields, that we use against him is religion. Surprising as that may seem, religion. Uh, Leslie Newbigin says in his commentary on John's gospel that religion is unbelief. Religion is unbelief. I realize that might sound strange to you. Isn't Christianity a religion? Uh, How can the Christian faith be unbelief? There is a sense in which the scripture uses the word religion favorably, when it refers to how having a real relationship with God in Christ changes our lives. But in another sense, people commonly understand and use the idea of religion as a way actually to avoid real relationship with the one true God through Jesus Christ. Even the Jews, even the Jews who had biblical religion, even Christians today who insist on biblical doctrines, can use religion to resist Jesus. In fact, it's precisely that dynamic at work among Jesus' worst enemies, his worst enemies, that, that petrification of the religious in their opposition to Jesus. That's what ultimately compels them to kill him in the name of religion, kill Jesus in the name of their religion. So that's bad. We should talk about that approach to religion and see whether the gospel presents us with an alternative to this sort of uh, religious petrification. Does the gospel present us with an alternative to that as a response to Jesus Christ? Uh, That's what we'll talk about this morning from our passage. Let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, we are more in need of your help than we are aware as we come to your word. Realize if we're going to be receptive of your word and um, not resistant to you, then you must be at work in us truly through your Holy Spirit. So we pray for the Spirit's help now as we consider your word. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus and have an appropriate response, one of faith, to who he is and what he's done for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Hasn't the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one, has ever, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So John 7 has been a chapter about wisdom, where Jesus has insisted that the essence of true wisdom living all of life with god is only available through himself as you come to jesus thirsty to drink from him and uh, receive his spirit so coming to jesus for life with god is the beginning of wisdom and those who don't come to him who don't come to jesus by faith will not have true wisdom. they will not be able to judge rightly even the things that jesus himself is saying but when you do come to jesus and receive his spirit Then, Jesus says, in the passage just before this one, out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. The Spirit becomes a fountain of wisdom overflowing to others, and your life with God in Christ becomes a conduit for others to find life with God in Christ and and also true spiritual wisdom. But, But John 7 is also sort of an object lesson of folly. We've got Jesus teaching about true wisdom, making himself accessible as true wisdom for those who come to him by faith. But it's also an object lesson of folly, what happens when people don't do that, what happens when people don't come to Jesus, don't submit their lives to God's grace in him. The, the crowd that's here in the temple during this feast where Jesus is teaching, the crowd hasn't quite hardened in their opposition to him yet, not, not yet. They haven't quite hardened yet. It'll take a little more time for them all to be calling for his crucifixion, but they will eventually. But right now it seems like maybe they're open. Maybe they're asking questions. Maybe they're struggling to believe. It's hard to be too optimistic about their faith when they really aren't going to Jesus with their questions. They aren't going to Jesus in their thirst. They're just arguing amongst themselves and trying to judge for themselves and come to some sort of conclusion apart from Jesus, apart from interacting directly with Jesus. But they are sort of trying to think in biblical terms. And isn't that good? I mean, They're trying to judge him according to the scriptures that they have. Maybe Jesus is the prophet like Moses that we've been waiting for, that Moses told us would come. Maybe Jesus is the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. But wait a second. He's from Galilee, and we're expecting someone from Bethlehem. And ironically... Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and most of us know that when we're reading this passage. We know that he was born in Bethlehem. It's just that this crowd wasn't aware of the fact because they didn't go and ask him about it. (laughs) Like, generally you think, like, boy, he was born in Bethlehem. Why doesn't somebody correct that, that you know, misconception for them? Why, Why doesn't somebody correct the error in their thinking? Why don't they go and ask him? How does this work with what we're supposed to expect from the Messiah? Why don't they go? They didn't go. They didn't go and ask him. They could have had their answers, they, uh, their, their questions answered. Um, but they didn't go and ask him about it. Just like they didn't know that Jesus is from God, even though he's saying that to them, they, they couldn't grasp the idea that he came from God because they didn't go to him to learn more about God from him. They didn't go and just open themselves up and listen to what Jesus had to say. so the crowd isn't quite sure what to make of him yet, though clearly they're headed in, I think, the wrong direction. You can start to see that here, and we know that they all take the wrong direction later in the gospel. And again, here we get the repeated synopsis. Some wanted to arrest him, but that didn't happen, and we've we've seen this a few times uh, already in John's gospel. It didn't happen basically because Jesus wouldn't allow it. Until the right time, until his time had come, the hour had come for his crucifixion and his death, he wouldn't allow people to arrest him. Something you see throughout the Gospels, Jesus has authority to lay down his life. That's the nature of his authority. He decides when he will lay down his life and how and for whom he will lay down his life. No one takes it from him. Even when the soldiers do come later, and this is a big deal in John's gospel, uh, when they do come later, and it is time, Jesus demonstrates that he only goes willingly. Not because they forced him to go. He only goes because it's God's time. Um, Raymond Brown is a commentator on this. He points out, even when his hour has come, no one can lay a hand on Jesus until he permits it. That's because later in John's gospel we see Uh, in, In chapter 18, I'll read a few verses. It says, Judas, his betrayer, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there, went to the garden where Jesus was with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. They came looking for him, but they couldn't have him unless he wanted them to. He would only go willingly. It was his authority, on his authority, that he would go with them. When the time was right, he would go and lay down his life. He makes it abundantly clear that he is the Lord. Jesus is the Lord. No one takes him by force. That when he goes to die, it's not because his enemies are triumphant over him. But because he willingly lays down his life in love to forgive even his enemies. And the Gospels remind us that this freedom of his love, this power of his love, is what characterizes his entire ministry by reminding us so frequently That his enemies had no power over him until the hour when he deliberately placed himself in their hands so that he would be crucified. And we see that reminder again in our passage. And now we see those who are his greatest opposition, his greatest enemies. Not because they're especially powerful, but because before Jesus, they are powerless. They can't do anything about Jesus. It's not because they're especially powerful that they're his greatest enemies, but because they're the most vigorous in their opposition. That's what makes them the greatest enemies of Jesus. They're most vigorous in their opposition. It's the religious people. It's the religious people, the chief priests and the Pharisees. And those are two different groups of religious leaders. And and at the time, they were not comprised of similarly-minded people. They were not best friends. The chief priests were uh, primarily Sadducees, and their views often conflicted with those of the Pharisees. It's like two sort of political groups, religious groups, in the politics of Jerusalem. Their views often conflicted, but on Jesus they could agree. And about Jesus they could unite in opposition. Opposition. To Jesus Jesus brings all kinds of people together in some way or another. The religious leaders had already sent temple officers to arrest Jesus. We saw that um, in our uh, passage we looked at a few weeks ago from John 7. The religious leaders had sent these officers from the temple, in, uh, temple officers, to arrest Jesus which implies that they themselves are maintaining distance from Jesus. They're not present They're sending officers in to arrest him. If Jesus is in the temple during the feast, teaching, then it leads you to wonder where exactly the temple leaders are. But they aren't listening to him, whatever the case is. They're not in the crowd. They're not listening to him. They send others to arrest him. They don't want to hear what he has to say. They don't even want to hear the reports of other people, what he has to say. They aren't listening. And when the officers come back empty-handed, they reveal their anger. They reveal it. They say, why did you not bring him? We sent you there for the purpose of arresting him. Why do you come back empty-handed? And the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man? Maybe there is something to this Jesus fellow. The, the synoptic gospels record the crowds responding to Jesus' teaching. as, No one's ever taught like this man. No one's ever taught with the authority that this man has. Maybe there's something to it, but the religious leaders don't like that answer at all. The Pharisees answered the officers, have you also been deceived? You idiots. Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? Rhetorical question, no. But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. The fact that these people are even listening to Jesus. They don't know the law, and they're accursed. A curse rests on them. Let them be cursed. And now they're just throwing everybody under the bus in order to maintain their self-justification in opposition to Jesus. They've made themselves his enemy. And they're willing to speak evil of everyone in order to continue to be Jesus' enemy. It is right to oppose Jesus even if it makes us really mean to everybody else. The whole world could be going after Jesus for all they cared. And they wouldn't budge an inch. They would remain his enemies. They would remain loyal to the law. And that's when you hear the sound of a record scratching to a halt. Wait, so they, they think it's okay. They think it's law-abiding. They think it's religious. They think it's what God wants to slander the crowd as biblically illiterate in order to maintain their position of resistance against Jesus? Actually, the crowd is sort of wrestling with the Bible here. In fact, they're doing that better than the Pharisees are. So the Pharisees' condemnation of this crowd isn't even accurate, let alone appropriate or charitable or anything like you'd expect from religious leaders. How is their slanderous condemning false accusation in line with God's law? Those things are explicitly forbidden by God's law, the way that they're acting right now. But it's clear that they believe that their religious devotion to God's law, that's what we're trying to do here, keep God's law, their religious devotion excuses and supports and reinforces their hostility to Jesus, and apparently the collateral damage of sinning against others is also acceptable. They think it's faithful to God's word to resist the one who is God's word. Even though it's obvious that they're being sinfully angry, they think there's nothing wrong with sinning if it means resisting this Jesus. And they're just losing it. They're just losing it now. The Pharisees say that others have been deceived, but they are the self-deceived ones. And their religious devotion is part of that self-deception. In spite of their attempt to intimidate others, Nicodemus, uh, Nicodemus uh, speaks up, and, um, and he had gone to Jesus before. Right? We remember that from John 3, and it's, it's mentioned here now. Nicodemus had gone to Jesus before, perhaps even displaying the beginning of faith, and he was one of them. He was one of the Pharisees, one of the rulers of the Jews, and he asks a reasonable question. It's pretty level-headed. You can imagine him being a bit timid about it, because they are intimidating, but uh, he asks a reasonable question. Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? In fact, the, the Pharisees' own book of laws, that that sort of extension, that embellishment on what they consider to be, you know, God's word has these laws, and in order to keep that, we're going to extend that out and write our own books of laws and rules and and little tiny details that uh, if we keep all that, then we're doing well, right? Those books of laws that they had written acknowledge that it's right for an accused man to be given a fair hearing. That seems reasonable. But fairness and reason went out the window a long time ago, and they react to Nicodemus with this ad hominem attack. They're not being logical. They replied, are you from Galilee too? You, you must be some backwater idiot if you're listening to Jesus. Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So that in their rage, they're losing their composure, And their minds, like they do later when they kill Jesus, and like they do even later when they kill Jesus' disciples like Stephen, they lose their minds in their anger. Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Okay, let's do that. Let's go to the Old Testament. Where are these prophets from? I was looking through my Bible, and search results show the prophet Jonah was from Galilee and Hosea, and Nahum, and possibly Elijah, Elisha, and Amos. (laughs) So the religious leaders are irrational in their rejection of Jesus. And it causes them to strongly assert things that are not true in order to justify and maintain their opposition, their enmity. So what's going on here? Leslie Newbigin, I'm going to quote him, uh, he's... He's got a really great commentary. I quote him frequently, but it um, says that the authorities have already made up their minds. They've retreated into the security of their religion, and this gives them the confidence to reject the testimony of their own agents. This security of theirs precludes the possibility of receiving the revelation. It makes it impossible for them to even hear what Jesus has to say. Even when one of their own members protests that they're violating the law by their refusal to give the accused a hearing, he is silenced. Thus, while the people who do not know the law are at least open to conviction, the guardians of the law, having made of the law a bastion for their own security, are incapable of receiving the new and strange word of revelation. They illustrate again the fact that religion is unbelief and that genuine revelation must involve contradiction. So they perceive Jesus as a threat. That's what's clear throughout the Gospels. His enemies perceive him as a threat. And somehow these enemies, his worst enemies, the religious leaders, the religious people, somehow found God, the idea of God, more manageable through their religion even though their religion was based on God's own revelation, which ultimately culminates in Jesus Christ himself. There's real contradiction here. There's real insanity here. It's like Jonah. They're torn. They're in an impossible place. Jonah wanted desperately to get away from God because he knew what God was like, because he didn't like it. And so while still wanting to be One of God's people, and demanding that he find favor in God's sight, he fled from God's presence. Because he knew what God was like, and he didn't like it. He wanted to have nothing to do with God. He didn't just flee God's mission for him. He didn't just like the marching orders. He disliked the marching orders that he'd been given. He fled God's presence. It says, twice in our old testament reading which john read he fled god's presence or he's trying to anyway yet somewhere inside he still identifies as a religious person who found special favor in god's sight but what he believed was right and good what he believed his instincts his religious instincts the things he believed were right and good were directly at odds with what god says are right and good Jesus is a threat to people who are like this, who want to feel special in and of ourselves, who want to feel like we deserve God's favor, who, who want to feel unique and better than others by comparison. We deserve God's favor more than other people deserve God's favor. Jesus is a threat to people who, who just want desperately to do the right thing, even though that means really ignoring God or resisting God, or rebelling against God. Jesus is a threat because coming to God through him means confession. That's not anybody's favorite word. It means confession. It means come to God on his terms rather than our, our own. Jesus is a threat because it means giving up all of our demands, all of our expectations for what life with God should be like, Jesus is a threat because it means giving up our self-importance and putting ourselves completely at his mercy. Jesus is a threat because he tells you that your instincts about God are wrong. Pretty much always. That you're you're pretty much always wrong about life and everything. Everything of of Supreme importance, supreme value, especially your relationship with God, you're wrong. Jesus says that, and that's why he's a threat. He's a threat because he says, if you don't come to God through him, then you're lost. You're utterly lost. There's really no hope for you. And I don't like the way that sounds. Do you? Especially good religious people don't like the way that sounds, that's what's laid out for us clearly in the Gospels. The people who have the hardest time with Jesus are the good religious people. Good religious people imagine that what he says doesn't really apply because I'm not lost. I'm good. I feel good about myself. I, I pray. I pray enough. I keep God's law so I can feel okay about myself. <clears throat> but we've lost sight of the reality. What, what sin really is what sin really is. Sin isn't just about abstract good and evil, doing the one and not doing the other, things that you do. Sin is rejecting God as he has revealed himself to us in the scriptures. Sin is resisting him. It's fleeing from his presence. It's a relational violation against God. <clears throat> the most benign version of that is just ignoring him. Right? But it's the same thing. It's sin just to ignore him, to have nothing to do with him as you're going about your daily life. That's what sin is. It's a relational problem between us and God. So you can't resist Jesus and not be sinning like the Pharisees were thinking that they were doing. Right? Their resistance to Jesus revealed that they were sinning. That's the same thing. Maybe you're not Pharisee-level religious unbeliever, right? But you can't do life well Whatever that means for you, you can't do life well apart from Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so it's Mother's Day. Let me pick on moms. You probably want to be a better mom, right? You want to be a better mom. Why? What does it mean to be a better mom? Or dad, and I'm not just picking on moms. I had this conversation with a dad this week, too why do you want to be a better parent? What does it mean to really be a better parent? If your answer to that doesn't include growing closer to God through Jesus Christ and coming to know him more deeply, then you're probably just trying to do life well apart from him. And that's the same kind of thing as these, as these Pharisees are doing. The unbelieving religion. I'm going to do life well apart from Jesus, and that's sin. What is sanctification? Everybody, what is sanctification, and why would you want it? Why would you want to grow in holiness? What does that even mean? If you want to be less angry or less lustful or less greedy or less jealous of other people, just in order to feel better, just to be a good person, to feel okay about yourself, that's still just trying to do life well apart from Jesus. Doesn't have anything to do with Jesus necessarily. It's unbelieving religion. You can't do life well apart from Jesus. You can't hold Him at a distance. You can't go through life not in communion with Him and have that be good. Trying to do anything at all apart from him is sin. It's unbelief. It's ultimately resistance and rebellion because really, ultimately, we'd just rather not have anything to do with him. That's instinctive for us. That's what's going on inside of all of us. We'll use the best things. We'll use religious devotion. We'll use God's own law. We'll use good living, whatever that means, to avoid Jesus, which means avoid a God. And the only alternative that the gospel gives us to hardening up against him in that resistance is softening, which is the work of God's own spirit that enables you to believe that Jesus is, in fact, not a threat. He is not a threat to your well-being. There's really nothing to fear. You don't have to resist him. In fact, your life depends on your not resisting him. The good news of Jesus Christ is not a threat. It's the best thing you could ever hear. It's the sure declaration of God's free love to you, even you, every single one of you, even you. God was not compelled to love you. His love was not wrung out of him or bargained out of him through your good life, your keeping of his law, His love is not a response to anything good in you. In fact, his love comes to you completely in spite of your not deserving it at all. In spite of your resistance, your active rebellion, in spite of that, in spite of your enmity, in spite of your hostility, his love comes to you. Because he is the God that he is, because at the heart of all reality is this God, At the time and in the manner of his own choosing, he sent his son in the flesh, Jesus Christ, who is the the true king, to be set upon by rebels and brigands and usurpers for the sake of those rebels and brigands and usurpers. He was sent into the world for our sake so that through his death, we all might find true life with God, no longer apart from God, no longer all the compartments of our lives kept separate from God, but all those compartments, our whole life brought together with God into communion with God where we can do it with God. Because of Jesus Christ and the most surprising and powerful of all conversions, when people stop being rebels and they start being disciples and followers of Jesus and believers, the most powerful of all conversions of people coming from opposition and enmity to faith that rests in Christ is when good, good, moral, religious people who have convinced themselves they don't need him set down their shields and stop using their religion to keep Jesus at a distance and confess their need of him and celebrate him for his great mercy and start to see every part of their lives as an opportunity to know him more deeply. Every part. Or else why would we do it at all? Jesus is the friend of sinners, and I don't care who you are, that means you. And that's good news, sinner. That's good news. So put your faith in Jesus Christ and discover more deeply what that really says about the God that Jesus, the friend of sinners, reveals to people like us. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do marvel that you came into the world to be with people like us, that you've not distanced yourself from people like us, that you even gave your life for people like us. It's beyond really our comprehension. It is not instinctive at at all for us to understand this great love. So we pray for your Holy Spirit to help us to understand. We pray that you would do, again, that work that only you can do in softening our hearts where they're hard towards you, in making us able to see our own sin in light of your love, to not be uh, despairing over our sin, to not harden up in our rebellion against you, but to be open to you, because the one great and final word coming from you is the word love that you've shown us clearly through your own sacrifice at the cross. And we pray that you would make us open to you in a way that, would, um, that we would begin to welcome you into every part of our lives and not, not imagine ourselves be doing life well apart from you in various parts of our lives, but, uh, but to, to see every part of our life as a place to meet you, a place to learn from you, a place to receive your mercy, the mercy and grace of your own presence and uh, as places to to live transformed lives because of your gospel and, and to bear witness to and testify to your great love to us in every part of our lives, to all the people around us. We pray that you would make that change in us by your grace. We pray in your name. Amen.